Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Hear now God's Word. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. We turn now to the last big section of the letter to the Ephesians. This will be the application section of the letter, the doctrinal portion of this This foundation has already been laid by the Apostle. As a pastor, as a counselor, I have turned to this particular section of Scripture, uh, really starting here in verse 14 of chapter 4 to the end of the chapter, uh, more often than any other portion of Scripture. There's so much in here. Uh, that is applicable to how we live, how we live with each other, how we live in our families, how we live with our neighbors, how we resolve conflicts, how we're to see ourselves, how we're to see the world, parents, children, the personal uh, growth and, and walk with Christ. All of that is packed into these last three chapters. And if we all were to learn and take to heart the instructions that are found in these, these few passages of Scripture, I believe that our lives would be radically transformed. Your family would be a happy place of loving communion that it was intended to be, and the church would be the very picture of unity in the bond of peace. In this section, the Apostle is going to compare and contrast the unbeliever and the believer. It's a dramatic contrast and an appeal to you and me to see ourselves as completely new creatures in Christ. And so I want to challenge you that there should be no more flirting with our faith. No more half-hearted Christian living. It's all or nothing. That's what Jesus demanded. He doesn't say... You know, follow me when it's convenient, do it on the weekends, do it on Sundays, do it when you're in trouble. He calls us to lay down our lives, to take up our crosses, and to follow Him wherever He goes, all the time. And so, we are so often like someone who has inherited a fortune, but who never takes the time to discover just exactly how much has been deposited in our account. We may boast of our inheritance. We may even hold up the checkbook. But because we have no idea of what's in there, we never write a check. We never draw on this. And so we may as well still be in our poverty. We've been made a part of the body of Christ and called to grow up into Him, into all things, into Christ who is the head. Until we become that perfect or mature person or man to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. That is the goal. And that is something we are being earnest about, not half-hearted about. 
As I said, Paul has already laid the doctrinal foundation so far, and now he says, This I say, therefore, in other words, because of all these things that are true about Christ, about who he is, about what he's done for you, about your position in Christ, because of who you are now, new creatures, new creations, because of that, and he says, and I testify in the Lord. This is not just my opinion. This is not just good advice. I am here to declare this authoritatively in the name of the Lord. And so if I might interpret, he's saying that because these truths and because of these truths and doctrines that I have laid out, you now ought to live accordingly and grow up accordingly. He is reminding us that this is, again, far more than just an opinion or a good idea. And so, as we say, this will be the practical application of what we believe. <coughs> the first critical point is seen in verses 17 through 24 of this, the rest of this book, where Paul emphasizes the fact, as I've said, that we are new creatures in Christ. In the second letter to the Corinthians, he summarizes this point when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, would that be you? If you're in Christ, then you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. How much has become new? All of it. Everything. Everything about your life. Everything in your life. We haven't just added a future trip to heaven or some additional morality to our lives. The transforming work of the Holy Spirit has fundamentally changed us so that even our eating and our drinking are now there to glorify God. Even something as mundane as our meals is changed and how we look at them has, is changed. And so to be a Christian involves far more than some general philosophy of life, though it certainly includes that, it also addresses the details, the particulars. If the gospel isn't seen in our lives, then, of course, we are denying what we say we believe. If you don't look essentially the same on Thursday that you do on, as you do on Sunday, then something's wrong. And so if you don't have communion in your marriage then you're missing the point of the communion table on Sunday. These are not separate events, isolated. These are tied together. It's who we are. Being a Christian is not just what we do. It's who we are. Which means you are that wherever you are, all the time. You're in, you're in Christ at church. You are in Christ at home. At work, at school, with your clients, with your customers, with your friends, and with strangers. Everyone that comes into contact with us should notice almost immediately that we're not like the world. They should perhaps be puzzled or curious or intrigued or perhaps even taken back a bit. After all, Jesus, we read, Paul writes in Titus 2, gave himself for us. Why? 
that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. And so if you're a Christian, you're not just a little more religious or a little more moral than other people. Or someone who has decided to go to church or just be religious, you have a new nature, you're a new creation, you're altogether different. And as a result, there are things that the world does that you find now to be unthinkable. Your perspective has changed. You've been made holy, separate. And so Paul says that as a result of what Christ has done for you and to you, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now, the Ephesians were Gentiles. But now there's something major that changed. They are Christian Gentiles. They are Gentiles who are followers of Christ. They are Gentiles who have now been placed into the body of Christ. They are Gentiles who have been transformed and changed. And so he says, you're not like the other Gentiles. Being Christians overrides our other identifications. We might be Texans, but we're not like every other Texan. We are Christians. The word walk has reference to our entire life, our attitudes, our words, our actions, mind, will, and emotion. Sometimes this word is translated our conversation. In other words, our whole life, both inward and outward, is transformed. So he says from now on, now that you are a part of the body of Christ. So let me just say something about joining a church, being baptized. That baptism marks you out, sets you apart, says you've been cleansed of your sins. You now belong to Him. You have been made holy. You've been separated from the world. And now you're being incorporated into the body of Christ. Church membership must not be taken lightly. This is a transforming moment. It's not joining an organization. This is not the Rotary Club. This is not just a social group. This is the body of Christ. This is what Christ, how Christ is represented to the world, and now you're part of that, and you represent Him as such. And so, he says from now on, now that you're a part of the body of Christ, the past is behind you, and you now have a future. Old things have passed away. Everything's become new. Jesus has no interest in you keeping one foot in the old world. He called you to die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. And so, of course, you're going to follow somebody. But to follow Him, you've got to forsake all the others. Now notice what He says. I don't want you to walk like the other Gentiles who are futile in their thinking, who, who, are, uh, who have a futility in their mind. And so... I want us to start looking at this passage. We're not going to get through all of it today. But I want us to start looking at what it is we have been liberated from. As Paul describes a futile or empty or vain way of thinking, I think we can be reminded already of what he said in chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2, he described the unbeliever's life like this. 
And you, you're different, you're Christians, you he made alive who were dead, cut off in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we too also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Just like they are. But you're not like that anymore. Something's happened to you. The reason the unbeliever lives the way he does has everything to do with the way he thinks. In verse 17, Paul speaks of the general condition of men when he refers to their futility of mind. In verse 18, he gives us the cause of that futility, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them and because of the blindness of their heart. And then in verse 19, he tells us of the consequences of this futility of mind, who, being past feeling, being numb, if you will, have given themselves over to lewdness, to a sensual life, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And so let's consider first this general condition. You see, without a foundation, it is, and without a proper starting point, the end result can only be empty. You going on a trip? Don't you need to know where you're going? If you didn't know where you were going, and I talked to you three days into your trip and said, how's it going? And you say, well, I'm making progress. Toward what? Which direction? Where are you going? Well, I don't know where I'm going. Well, then how do you know you're making progress? You see, without that, without some understanding of where it is you're going or why you're doing it, going is not sufficient. Going is not, uh, is not accomplishing anything. If it is true, as Proverbs 9.10 says, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, then it is impossible to understand the world without first knowing God. The life of the unbeliever is simply put, aimless and pointless. Without God in eternity, as I've said before, this world is a meat grinder, and you are the meat. Or, as Star Trek fans may remember, an alien's description of humans as ugly bags of mostly water. Even evolution, the grand explanation of life, assumes progress, but has no ability to define progress. We're evolving into something, but we don't know what or why. And when the sun finally explodes, it won't matter, just like you don't matter. Now, haven't the great philosophers given us something other than the futility of mind? They spent considerable time with their great intellects pondering and considering life's big questions. They've given us long treaties on truth, goodness, and beauty. But in the end, what they've given us is ever-changing question answers to never-changing questions. 
Each philosophical road ends in a dead end. Every philosophy ends in skepticism. And in Paul's day, Athens was the city of the great philosophers, the place where the educated came to discuss the big issues of the day. Luke describes them this way in Acts 17, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear something new. What's the latest? i got a new idea. What about this? A lot of speculation. A lot of pondering. A lot of debating. You remember in Acts 17, after Paul had toured Athens, while he was waiting for his companions to come, and you remember he went to the marketplace, and he just began to talk with whoever was there. Finally, a crowd gathers around him, and they want to hear him. They take him to the Areopagus, the big court there where the philosophers and teachers were, to hear this new thing that he was talking about. (coughs) Here's what he said to them. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I will proclaim to you. Where did their search lead them? To futility. Their cyclical view of history led them in a circle, and a vicious circle at that. Solomon concluded, vanity or vanity or futility of futility. All is vanity. That which has been is that which will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. So what have the wise men of the world given us? What are they giving you? They know so much. Here is Paul's description, and I'm going to take the time to read a couple of longer passages today, but can't say it any better than this. He's describing the wise men of the world. Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile, there's that word, futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. To do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, 
sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I feel like I just got through watching the news. That's a description of our world, isn't it? Futility of mind. A lot of talk, a lot of assertions, a lot of causes, a lot of placards. Why? What does it lead to? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarized it this way, and I, I just love this statement. Listen carefully. Life without Christ is always empty. It is always vain. It takes away from you. It takes out of you. And it leaves you at the end, the empty husk. It leaves you exhausted, with nothing to lean on, nothing to be proud of, and nothing whatsoever to look forward to. Altogether, then, the Apostle is saying, you are no longer to be controlled and influenced by an outlook and a mentality like that. And the psalmist captures the whole matter Psalm 14, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek for God. They have all turned aside. They have become altogether corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then John summarizes it this way. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, sin caused darkness of mind. And only the gospel can reverse that. Paul writes in Colossians 1, he, he, that is Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom. Sorry, this is referring to the Father. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sin. Sin was the problem. Sin led to darkness. Sin turned out the lights. Sin left us groping for truth with no benchmark, no ability to know it if we found it. And we could go on and on about this. The difference between being in Christ and outside of Christ is night and day, darkness and light. And this description of unbelievers is not limited to the uneducated, to the backward. Rather, it is true of the most sophisticated and cultured people in the world. Smart people still cannot see in the dark. 
Paul offers an extended description of this contrast between believer and unbeliever in 1 Corinthians. Yeah, this is, where are you? Which, which group are you in? Which side of the abyss are you on? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Excuse me. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He continues in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, saying, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And so, the question, are you still in Egypt? Still in the land of darkness? Do you sneak over the border on Sunday only to return to Egypt on Monday? Are you like some of the children of Israel who, after being liberated from Egypt, long to go back? Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians, and I'll close with this. Remember this contrast. In Christ or not. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Who do you hang out with? Who would you rather be with? Who are you tied to? Who are you bound to? Who are you obligated to? Where are your commitments? Do not... Be unequally yoked together (coughs) with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, 
Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now we're going to continue this as we move forward in this passage and see some further contrast between belief and unbelief. But the point I want to leave you with is that this is not, this isn't gray, this isn't fuzzy, this is not a slight difference. This is a radical difference. And you need to be clear about where you are and who you are. And that will make a lot of decisions in your life a whole lot easier once you do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and for transferring us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son of your love. Help us to flee the darkness of Egypt and to live in that light. May our minds be transformed so that we might see the truth and escape the futility of mind that has blinded the world and alienated them from you. As we come to the table to renew covenant with you, we pray that you would feed us and nourish us, that we might go forth ready to live and serve you in every circumstance of this week. May our spouses, children, friends, and strangers all see Christ in us. Amen. Amen. Colossians 2, 8-10 Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in him. He is and has everything you need. The book of Hebrews says that Moses... Quote, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. What about you? Have you ever considered what you have been given in Christ? If you have, then it will be evident in how you live. In the words of the hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We have been commanded to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And so I urge you this morning to make a new and unreserved commitment to that. To live in the light. For it is the God, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. All your works praise you, O Lord, and your saints give thanks to you. We open our mouths to bless your holy name. We are especially grateful today for the kind providence you've shown us in times of delight and in times of trial. Indeed, you have worked all things together for our good in Christ, and we gratefully receive your salvation by grace alone. 
You have have brought us one by one to participate in this covenant community of your saints, to live, love, and serve together. We thank you for all the faithful saints who have gone before us, for fathers and mothers, uncles and aunts, friends and neighbors, pastors and elders, as well as strangers, for all those who have adorned the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have served and prayed, who have lived and proclaimed, who have sacrificed and died. For here we sit as the benefactors of your grace and your saints. Keep us, we pray, that we too might have the blessing of participation in the work of your kingdom, that the generation to come might know your works, the children who would be born, that they might arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget your works. Lord, you have made us a people before you. You've given us a name. You've given us a place to worship. You've given us a people to serve and love. You have fed us and built us up. And you have given us friends and families. You have provided food and shelter. You've given us great cause to rejoice and celebrate in Christ. Bless now our feast, our rest, and our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.